Volume Two, Chapter Five of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. The Colonel of the Dragoon Regiment rode into Hythe coolly and calmly, followed by his servant. For though, to say the truth, he had pushed his horse very fast for some part of the way, he judged it expedient not to cause any bustle in the town by an appearance of haste and excitement. It was customary in those days for officers in the army in active service, even when not on actual duty, to appear in their regimental uniform, but this practice the gentleman in question had dispensed with since he left London, on many motives, both public and personal, and though he wore the cockade, at that time the sign and symbol of a military man, or of one who affected that position, yet he generally appeared in plain clothes, except when any large body of the troops were gathered together. At the door of the inn where he had fixed his headquarters, and in the passage leading from it into the house, were a number of private soldiers and a sergeant, and amongst them appeared Mr. Mole, the custom-house officer, waiting the arrival of the commander of the dragoons. As the latter dismounted, Mole advanced to his side, saying something in a low voice. The young officer looked at the sky, which was still glowing bright with the sun, which had about an hour and a half to run ere it reached the horizon. "'In an hour, Mr. Mole,' replied the officer, "'there will be time enough. "'Make all your own arrangements in the meanwhile.' "'But, sir, if you have to send to Folkestone,' said Mole, "'you misunderstood me, I think.' "'No, no,' answered the Colonel, "'I did not. "'You misunderstood me. "'Come back in an hour. "'If you show haste or anxiety, "'you will put the enemy on his guard.' "'After having said these few words in a low tone, "'he entered the house and gave some orders to the soldiers.' several of whom sauntered away slowly to their quarters, as if the business of the day were over, and then, proceeding to his own room, he rang the bell and ordered dinner. "'I thought there was a bit of a bustle, sir,' said the landlord inquiringly, as he put the first dish upon the table. "'Oh, dear, no,' replied the colonel. "'Did you mean about these men who have escaped?' "'I didn't know about what, colonel,' answered the landlord, "'but seeing Mr. Mole waiting for you—' "'You thought it must be about them,' added the officer. "'But you are mistaken, my good friend. "'There is no bustle at all. "'The men will, doubtless, soon be taken, "'one after the other, by the constables. "'And at all events, that is an affair "'with which I can have nothing to do.' "'The landlord immediately retreated, "'loaded with intelligence, "'and informed two men who were sipping rum and water "'in the tap-room, "'that Mole had come to ask the colonel "'to help in, a in apprehending the major and others "'who had been rescued,' and that the colonel would have nothing to do with it. The men finished their grog much more rapidly than they had begun it, and then walked out of the house, probably to convey the tidings elsewhere. Now the town of Hyde is composed, as every one knows, of one large and principal street nearly at the bottom of the hill, with several back streets, or perhaps lanes we might call them, running parallel to the first, and a great number of shorter ones running up and down the hill and connecting the principal thoroughfare with those behind it. Many, nay, I might almost say most, of the houses in the main street had, at the time I speak of, a back as well as a front entrance. They might sometimes have even more than one, for there were trades carried on in Hythe, as the reader has been made aware, which occasionally required rapid and secret modes of exit. Nor was the house in which the young commander of dragoons resided without its conveniences in this respect. But it happened that Mole, the officer, was well acquainted with all its different passages and contrivances, 
and consequently he took advantage on his return at the end of an hour of one of the small lanes which led him by a back way into the inn. Then ascending a narrow staircase without disturbing anybody, he made his way to the room he sought where he found the colonel of the regiment quietly writing some letters after his brief meal was over. "'Well, Mr. Mole,' said the young officer, folding up and sealing the note he had just concluded, "'now let me hear what you have discovered and where you wish the troops to be.' "'I'm afraid, sir, we have lost time,' answered Mole, "'for I can't tell at what time the landing will take place.' "'Not before midnight,' replied his companion. "'There is no vessel in sight, and, with the wind at this quarter, "'they can't be very quick in their movements.' "'Why, probably not before midnight, sir,' answered Mole. "'But there are not above fifty of your men within ten miles round, "'and if you've to send for them to Folkestone and Ashford, "'and out almost to Staplehurst, "'you'll have no time to make them ready in March, "'and the fellows will be off into the wheel before we can catch them.' "'The young officer smiled. "'Then you think fifty men will not be enough?' he asked. "'Not half enough,' answered Mole, beginning to set down his companion.' "'as a person of very little intellect or energy. "'Why, from what I hear, there will be some two or three hundred of these fellows down "'to carry the goods after they are run, "'and every one of them equal to a dragoon at any time.' "'Well, we shall see,' said the young officer coolly. "'You are sure that Dimchurch is the place?' "'Why, somewhere thereabouts, sir, and that's a long way off,' answered Mole. "'So if you have any arrangements to make, you had better make them.' "'They're all made,' replied the colonel. "'But tell me, Mr. Mole, does it not frequently take place that, "'when smugglers are pursued in the marsh, "'they throw their goods into the cuts and canals "'and creeks by which it is intersected?' "'To be sure they do, sir,' exclaimed the officer. "'And they'll do that to a certainty if we can't prevent them landing, "'and if we attack them in the marsh.' "'To prevent them landing,' said the gentleman, "'seems to me impossible in the present state of affairs, "'and I do not know whether it would be expedient, even if we could.' "'Your object is to seize the goods, both for your own benefit and that of the state, "'and to take as many prisoners as possible. "'Now, from what you told me yesterday, I find that you have no force at sea "'except a few miserable boats.' "'I sent off for the revenue cruiser this morning, sir,' answered Mole. "'But she is not come,' rejoined the officer, "'and consequently must be thrown out of your combinations. "'If we assemble a large force at any point of the coast, "'the smugglers on shore will have warning.' They may easily find means of giving notice of the fact to their comrades at sea. The landing may be effected at a different point from that now proposed, and the goods carried clear off before we can reach them. It seems to me, therefore, better for you to let the landing take place quietly. As soon as it has taken place, the beacons will be lighted by my orders. The very fact of a signal they don't understand will throw the smugglers into some confusion, and they will hurry out of the marsh as fast as possible." "'But suppose they separate and all take different roads,' said Mole. "'Then all, or almost all, the different parties will be met with and stopped,' replied the officer. "'But your men cannot act without a requisition from the customs, sir,' answered Mole. "'And they are so devilish cautious of committing themselves.' "'But I am not,' rejoined the colonel, "'and every party along the whole line has noticed "'that the firing of the beacons is to be taken as a signal,' that due requisition has been made, and has orders also to stop any body of men carrying goods that they may meet with. But I do not think that these smugglers will separate at all, Mr. Mole. Their only chance of safety must seem to them, not knowing how perfectly prepared we are, 
to lie in their numbers and their union. While acting together their numbers, it appears from your account, would be sufficient to force any one post opposed to them, according to the arrangements which they have every reason to believe still exist, and they will not throw away that chance. It is, therefore, my belief that they will make their way out of the marsh in one body. After that, leave them to me. I will take the responsibility upon myself. Very well, Colonel, very well, said Mole. If you are ready without my knowing anything about it, all the better. Only the fellow I sent you brought back word something about Folkestone. That was merely because I did not like the man's look, replied the young officer, and thought you would understand that a message sent you in so public a manner, upon a business which required secrecy, must not be read in its direct sense. Oh, I see, Colonel, I see, cried the officer of customs. It was stupid enough not to understand. All my people are ready, however, and if we could but discover the hour the run is to be made, we should have a pretty sure game of it. "'Cannot the same person who gave you so much intelligence give you that also?' asked his companion. "'Why, no, either the imp can't or he won't,' said Mole. "'I had to pay him ten pounds for what tidings I got, for the little wretch is as cunning as Satan.' "'Are you sure the intelligence was correct?' demanded the officer of dragoons. "'Oh, yes, sir,' replied Mole. "'His tidings have always been quite right.' "'And, besides, I've the means of testing this myself, "'for he told me where they are to meet, "'at least a large party of them, "'before going down to the shore. "'I've a very great mind to disguise myself "'and creep in among them.' "'A very hazardous experiment, I should think,' "'said the Colonel, "'and I do not see any object worth the risk.' "'Why, the object would be to get information of the hour,' "'answered Mole. "'If we could learn that some time before,' "'We could have everything ready and have them watched all through the marsh.' "'Well, you must use your own judgment in that particular,' answered the young officer. "'But I tell you, I am quite prepared myself, "'and such a large body as you have mentioned cannot cross a considerable extent of country "'without attracting attention.' "'Well, I'll see, sir, I'll see,' answered Mole. "'But had I not better send off two or three officers towards Dimchurch "'to give your men notice as soon as the goods are landed?' "'Undoubtedly,' answered the Colonel. "'There's a party at New Romney and a party at Burmarsh. "'They both have their orders, and as soon as they have intimation will act upon them. "'I would have enough men present, if I were you, to watch the coast well, "'but with strict orders to do nothing to create alarm.' "'Some minor arrangements were then entered into, of no great importance to the tale.' and Mole took his leave after having promised to give the colonel the very first intimation he received of the farther proceedings of the smugglers. The completion of his own arrangements took the custom-house officer half an hour more, and at the end of that time he returned to his own dwelling and sat down for a while to think over the next step. He felt a strong inclination to visit the meeting-place of the smugglers in person. He was, as we have shown, a man of a daring and adventurous disposition, "'strong in nerve, firm in heart, and with perhaps too anxious a sense of duty. "'Indeed, he was rather inclined to be rash than otherwise, "'from the apprehension of having anything like fear attributed to him "'in the execution of the service he had undertaken. "'But still he could not shut his eyes to the fact "'that the scheme he meditated was full of peril to himself. "'The men amongst whom he proposed to venture were lawless, "'sanguinary, and unscrupulous.' and, if discovered, he had every reason to believe that his life would be sacrificed by them 
without the slightest hesitation or remorse. He was their most persevering enemy. He had spared them on no occasion, and although he had dealt fairly by them, yet many of those who were likely to be present had suffered severe punishment at his instigation and by his means. He hesitated a little and called to mind what the colonel had said regarding the hazard of the act and the want of sufficient object, and then, suddenly starting up, he looked forward with a frowning brow, exclaiming, "'Why, hang it, I'm not afraid. I'll go, whatever befalls me. It's my duty not to leave any chance for information untried. That young fellow is mighty cool about the business, and if these men get off, it shall not be any fault of mine.' Thus saying, he lighted a candle and went into an adjoining room, where, from a large commode, filled with a strange medley of different dresses and implements, he chose out a wagoner's frock, a large pair of leathern leggings, or gaiters, and a straw hat, such as was very commonly used at that time amongst the peasantry of England. After gazing at them for a moment or two, and turning them over once or twice, he put them on, and then, with a pair of sharp scissors, cut away, in a rough and unceremonious fashion, a considerable quantity of his black hair, which was generally left rough and floating. High up over his neck and round his chin, he tied a large blue handkerchief, and when thus completely accoutred, gave himself a glance in the glass, saying, "'I don't think I should know myself.' He seemed considerably reassured at finding himself so completely disguised, and then, looking at his watch and perceiving that the hour named for the meeting was approaching, he put a brace of pistols in his breast, where they could be easily reached through the opening in front of the smock-frock. He had already reached the door when something seemed to strike him, and saying to himself, "'Well, there's no knowing what may happen. It's better to prepare against anything,' he turned back to his sitting-room and wrote down on a sheet of paper. "'Sir, I'm gone up to see what they are about. If I should not be back by eleven, you may be sure they have caught me, and then you must do your best with Birchett and the others.' If I get off, I'll call in as I come back, and let you know. Sir, your very obedient servant, William Mole. As soon as this was done, he folded the note up, addressed and sealed it, and then, blowing the light out, he called an old female servant who had lived in his house for many years, and whom he now directed to carry the epistle to the Colonel of Dragoons, who was up at the inn, adding that she was to deliver it with her own hand. The old woman took it at once, and knowing well how usual it was for the custom-house officers to disguise their persons in various ways, she took no notice of the strange change in Mr. Mole's appearance, though it was so complete that it could not well escape her eyes, even in the darkness which reigned throughout the house. This having been all arranged, and the maid on her way to convey the letter, Mole himself walked slowly forward through the long, narrow lanes at the back of the town, and along the path up towards Saltwood. It was dusk when he set out, but not yet quite dark, and as he went he met two people of the town whom he knew well, but who only replied to the awkward nod of the head which he gave them by saying, "'Good night, my man,' and walked on, evidently unconscious that they were passing an acquaintance. As he advanced, however, the night grew darker and more dark, and a fog began to rise, though not so thick as that of the night before." Mole muttered to himself as he observed it creeping up the hill from the side of the valley. Ay, this is what the blackguards calculated upon, and they are always sure to be right about the weather, but it will serve my turn as well as theirs. 
and on he went in the direction of the castle, keeping the regular road by the side of the hill, and eschewing especially the dwelling of Galley Ray and her grandson. Born in that part of the country and perfectly well prepared, both to find his way about every part of the ruins, and to speak the dialect of the county in its broadest accent, if he should be questioned, the darkness was all that he could desire, and it was with pleasure that he found the obscurity so deep that even he could not see the large stones which at that time lay in the road, causing him to stumble more than once as he approached the castle. He was in some hope, indeed, of reaching the ruins before the smugglers began to assemble, and of finding a place of concealment whence he could overhear their sayings and doings. But in this expectation he discovered, as he approached the walls, that he should be disappointed, for in the open road between the castle and the village he found a number of horses tied, and two men watching. He trudged on past them, however, with a slow step and a slouching gait, and when one of the men called out, "'Is that you, Jack?' he answered, "'Aye, aye!' without stopping. At the gate of the court he heard a good many voices talking within, and it must be acknowledged that, although as brave a man as ever lived, he was not without a strong sense of the dangers of his situation. But he suffered it not to master him in the least, and advancing resolutely, he soon got the faint outline of several groups of men, amounting in the whole to about thirty, assembled on the green between the walls and the keep. Walking resolutely up to one of these little knots, he looked boldly amongst the persons it comprised, as if seeking for somebody. Their faces could scarcely be distinguished, but the voices of one or two who were talking together showed him that the group was a hazardous one, as it contained several of the most notorious smugglers of the neighbourhood, who had but too good cause to be well acquainted with his person and his tongue. He went on, consequently, to the next little party, which he soon judged from the conversation he overheard, to be principally composed of strangers. One man spoke of how they did things in Sussex, and told of how he had aided to haul up, heaven knows how many bales of goods over the bare face of the cliff between Hastings and Winchelsea. Judging, therefore, that he was here in security, the officer attached himself to this group, and after a while ventured to ask, "'Do you know what's to be the hour about?' The man he spoke to answered no, adding that they could not tell anything till the gentleman came. This, however, commenced the conversation, and Mole was speedily identified with that group, which, consisting entirely of strangers, as he had supposed, did not mingle much with the rest. Every one present was armed, and he found that though some had come on foot like himself, the greater part had journeyed on horseback. He had a good opportunity also of learning that, notwithstanding every effort made by the government, the system of smuggling was carried on along the coast to a much greater extent than even he himself had been aware of. Many of his brother officers were spoken of in high terms of commendation, which did not sound very satisfactory to his ears, and many a hint for his future operations he gained from the gossip of those who surrounded him. Still time wore on, and he began to be a little uneasy lest he should be detained longer than the hour which he had specified in his note to the colonel of the dragoons. But at length, towards ten o'clock, the quick tramping of a number of horses were heard, and several voices speaking, and a minute after five or six-and-twenty men entered the grass court, and came up hastily to the rest. "'Now are you all ready?' cried a voice, which Mole instantly recognised as that of young Radford. 
"'Yes, we've been waiting these two hours,' answered one of those in the group which the officer had first approached. "'But you'll never have enough here, sir.' "'Never you mind that,' rejoined Richard Radford. "'There are eighty more at Limpney, and a good number down at Dimchurch already, with plenty of horses. Come, muster, muster, and let us be off, for the landing will begin at one, and we have a good long way to go.' "'Remember, everyone,' he continued, raising his voice, "'that the way is by Butters Bridge, and then down and along the shore. "'If anyone takes the road by Burmarsh, he will fall in with the dragoons. "'Troop off, my men, troop off. "'You, Ned, and you, Major, see that the court is quite cleared. "'We must have none lagging behind.' "'This precaution did not at all disconcert our good friend, Mole, "'for he judged that he should very easily find the means of detaching himself from the rest,' at the nearest point to Hythe, and accordingly he walked on with the party he had joined, till they arrived at the spot where they had seen the horses tied. There, however, the greater part mounted, and the others joined a different body, which Mole was well aware was not quite so safe, for acting as the chief thereof, and looking very sharply after his party too, was no other than our friend the Major. Mole now took good care to keep silence, a prudent step, which was enjoined upon them all by Mr. Radford and some others, who seemed to have the direction of the affair. But notwithstanding every care, the tread of so many men and so many horses made a considerable noise, and just as they were passing a small cottage not a quarter of a mile from Saltwood, the good dame within opened the door to see what such a bustle could be about. As she did so, the light from the interior fell full upon Mould's face, and the eyes of the Major turned towards the door at the same moment, rested upon him for an instant, and were then withdrawn. It were vain to say that the worthy officer felt quite as comfortable at that moment as if he had been in his own house, but when no notice was taken he comforted himself with the thought that his disguise had served him well, and trudged on with the rest without showing any hesitation or surprise. About half a mile farther lay the turning which he proposed to take, to reach Hythe, and he contrived to get over to the left side of the party, in order to drop off in that direction unperceived. When he was within ten steps of it, however, and was congratulating himself that the party, having scattered a little, gave him greater facilities for executing his scheme, an arm was familiarly thrust through his own, and a pair of lips, close to his ear, said in a low but very distinct tone, "'I know you.' and if you attempt to get off, you are a dead man. Continue with the party, and you are safe. When the goods are landed and gone, you shall go, but the least suspicious movement before shall bring twenty bullets into your head. You did me a good turn yesterday morning before the justices in not raking up old offences, and I am willing to do you a good turn now, but this is all I can do for you. Mole turned round, well knowing the voice, nodded his head, and walked on with the rest in the direction of Limpney. End of chapter 5